We're going to start out, though, with a question for you. When you think about the future, whether that's your own, your family's, or the planet's, how often is the future of animal life part of that thought? In his new book, British journalist Henry Mance argues that if we considered the happiness and health of pets and wildlife more, we could change life for the better and maybe even save the planet. Mance's new book is called How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. Culture Shift's Amanda LeClaire spoke with him about having his own children, how having his own children caused him to rethink his entire relationship to the animal world. Yeah, so for me, animals came back into my life when my daughters were born. And suddenly I found myself surrounded by storybooks and cartoons and soft toys, all of which were kind of representing animals and were teaching my daughters to love the natural world. And it made me sit up and it made me say, hold on, am I living in a way that's good for animals? Am, am I leaving a positive impact on it? And I sort of felt I was, I was maybe um, presenting a slightly misleading image to my young daughters. Um, and I think, I think really we have to start taking animals a lot more seriously because our future as humans really depends on other species doing well. And if we continue to farm in the way we, we are, if we continue to cut down rain, rainforests and grasslands and destroy wild spaces, then this world's going to be a lot less stable and a lot less secure. And I think actually, fundamentally, we do love animals. We do want to treat them well. And so we have to find a new ethic, a new way of living in this century, which respects that love and which will also make um, our lives better. Well, you know, you talk specifically about the amount that, that Americans in particular spend on their pets, which is in the billions. Uh, yet we routinely continue to, you know, um, eat meat, slaughtering billions upon billions of animals per year. Talk about some of the roles that you took on when you were researching this book and some of these, I guess, almost inexplicable contradictions in our thinking toward animal life, but our actual actions toward it. Yeah, we humans are great at many things, but one of the things we're really good at is keeping contradictory ideas in our head. So we, we know animals have emotions, we know they have feelings, and we really want to recognize those feelings when they happen in our pets. So Americans, for the first time last year, spent more than $100 billion on their pets, which is a huge amount, a real sign of our love. And at the same time, we convince ourselves that farm animals are fine being kept in very small cages, that you know dairy cows don't want to go outside, that they don't mind when they're separated from their calves. Um, and I think there are, there are various studies that show how we do this and, and how we manage to juggle around in our, in our heads. But I would simply say, look, if you love your dog um, or cat, recognize that um, farm animals have very similar emotions, very similar social needs. And indeed, zoo, elef uh, zoo animals, uh, elephants, giraffes, would you put your dog in an enclosure in a zoo in the same way that we see some animals? And I think the answer is probably not. And so I, I think our, our love for our, our pets is at the moment a kind of exception of how we treat animals. And I think it could be a real, um, a real springboard to treating all kinds of animals better. Yeah, and I think, um, uh, I think it's definitely part of the, um, hopefully the same point. I mean, I, I, um, 
in in the book I talk about what you know what love means and you know love I think whether it's with a human or an animal just means recognizing that there's a there is another individual there and trying to see the world a little bit through their eyes to understand what they want um, and I think too often with animals and it can even be with our dogs um, but it can certainly be with farm animals and zoo animals we see, only see them through our eyes we don't look at the world through their eyes we don't think hold on is that animal really happy like that is a is a um, uh, French bulldog being happy? Uh, is, are they happy being bred with a with a very flat face that impedes their breathing? That means that sometimes they can't even close their eyelids. Well, well, probably not. So we should stop looking at pedigree dogs in the way that we just find them beautiful and cute to have flat faces and start thinking what would make a good life for them. And likewise, I think with um, with uh, farm animals, we should stop saying, well, what would be delicious for me or what am I used to eating, and start saying, hold on. If I, is that a is that a life worth living? One where you have no freedom over decision making, over who, which other animals you spend your time with, um, over when you give birth, etc. And I I really believe that once people stop to think about where their food comes from, that um, they they will change their behaviour. And I um you know the the food writer Mark Bittman said that if if Americans were to see where um, where their meat would come, it came from, they would, they would cut down on 50% of it. And, you know, I, I, it might be 70%, it might be, might be more, but I think it would be a real change. Some circles, there has been talk, especially environmental circles, about the problem of these things called CAFOs, concentrated animal feeding operations, and that many people don't know that the meat, especially pork and beef that they buy at the store, often comes from these concentrated animal feeding operations. Um, you actually did some work at a, at a disassembly line and a pig farm uh, and saw sort of a behind-the-scenes look at it, what was happening to these animals. Can you go into detail about what you found? Yeah, in um, I went to work at a slaughterhouse. I was just thrown onto the, um, uh, the line there, really, and then uh, worked first with um, sheep and then with pigs and watch these you know these these animals go from living breathing sentient animals to to cuts of meat um in a in a in a really a, a few minutes and um i sort of really asked myself whether this system was necessary you know we are killing you know, millions actually billions of animals every year and um it, do we need to do this this would be justifiable if it were the only way for us to survive but in fact, we don't need animal products and we certainly don't need them in the quantity we eat them. I mean, uh, Americans on average eat nearly twice as much protein every day as uh, they require. Um, and we could easily um, get the protein we require from um, plant sources and do it much more efficiently. And I went to I went to work on a pig farm and actually not one of these uh, factory pig farms that you might find in a uh, in a state like Iowa, but it, you know a good uh, a good pig farm where the the pigs can go outdoors. Um, and I still found that on, you know, as I, I I still found that the the pigs themselves have been bred to a size which is really uncomfortable. And unfortunately, the the mother pigs often smother their young because they're just too too big. They just don't notice um, that they're doing it. And this isn't something as far as Experts could tell me this isn't something that happens in the wild with wild boar that they they lay on their their young and smother them. It's something that happens because we bred pigs to be this big and to have this many offspring that they um, they behave in this way. And on a, on a pig farm, pigs simply can't exercise the decisions that we would find would make a um, 
a, a sort of life satisfying. We, we would hate to be cooped up in the way they are. And I think if we, if we ask whether we're really happy um, for our meat to come from these places, and that's what I did, I think the answer is probably no. And it, it may come in small steps. And I think your kids can help you if you think about what, what kind of word world you want your kids to live in. Um, but, and having, so having kids is a moment of sort of reflection and of change. And just small steps in your diet, you know, just cutting down on meat, cutting down on dairy, um, I think can make an enormous difference. And I think many people are, are ready for that. Well, something you just said there is is small but striking that you uh, you worked on a pig farm where they actually let the pigs outside, which is just painful to think about how many of the how many of the the animals, how many pigs that we eat actually probably never see daylight. Exactly, and and pigs are animals um, who want to root around. You know, that's their that's their natural state of affair. They want, you know, in the wild they would be going from the forest to open space. They'd be using their nose. They've got incredible sense of smell, and they would be taking decisions for themselves. And you know, likewise, cows. If you've seen cows sort of running free, you'll notice that they're not like they are in a in a barn, just sort of uh, standing there. Uh, idly you know they have um they have emotions they get aggravated with one another they uh, have fun with one another they skip and jump you know it's it's really sad to see what we've reduced animals to and of course you know even though we've changed the shape and size of our farm animals from what they were in the wild there is still an emotional underpinning those animals are still have the same needs um as as many wild animals and certainly as our pets i mean they're it's wrong to think that just because we eat animals that they don't feel um, in the same way and they don't have the same needs. So I, um, uh, yeah, I think going outside should really be a basic for many animals. Uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of people could agree with that. You know, this case has been made about um, limiting meat and dairy in our diet as a way to to help the climate. What is the relationship between our, our current climate emergency and the amount of meat and dairy that we consume? So livestock farming is estimated to be responsible for about 15% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. And there are just far more efficient, more sustainable choices. For beef, you need 20 times as much land and, and it, it, it creates 20 times as much greenhouse gas emissions than pulses, so beans. So if we move towards the latter, if we move to plant-based sources, we could really reduce the amount of land we require and the amount of greenhouse gases we're producing. In in the US, beef accounts for nearly half the agricultural land, but it creates only 3% of the calories and about 12% of the protein. So these are really, if you want one way of improving your diet for the climate, it's to cut out animal products. And I, I think it's really hard for people in the supermarket to weigh up, you know, products one, one against the other all the time. And, and so I would just say you just need a simple rule of thumb, which is basically meat and, and dairy are not sustainable choices. And um, it's hard for people because that's what they were taught to eat as kids. Um, even if it's hard for you to get used to the taste of, of slightly different things, then I would say don't, don't make the same mistake with your kids. You know, acclimatize them to veggie burgers and oat milk and almond milk or whatever it might be because they're going to see that when they grow up as the sustainable choice. Again, we're talking to author Henry Mance. Uh, he's just written a new book called How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. You know, Henry, what else about, about the book and at this time uh, do you think it is important to talk about? We sometimes are a bit complacent about 
the fact that animals have been with us and they will always be with us. So, you know, the giraffes are so familiar to us on TV, in zoos, that we don't think about whether they'll actually be around in a few decades time. And giraffe numbers have fallen 40% since the 1970s. You know, lions now, you know, only live in about 10% of their historic areas and elephant numbers are decreasing. And unless we find spaces and we just say, look, we're not going to farm that area. We're not going to build houses on that area. We're going to leave that for wildlife. Unless we do that both um, at home and also around the world, then we will just not have these animals who we think of as, as, as sort of uh, um, essential to our world. And so I would proposal now, um, and the Biden administration has gone for it, which is to pr uh, protect 30% of the land for nature by 2030, and then 50% by 2050. And this is really ambitious because in the whole of you know, uh, the conservation movement to date, we've, we haven't even got to 20%. So we're going for 30% and then 50%. But I think it really is worthwhile because that land will also store carbon in the form of forests and grasslands. It will give us resilience um, as the climate changes. Um, it'll, you know, the more these protected areas are connected, the more animals can move between them. And I think we just have to think in terms of if there are going to be um, eight, nine, ten billion of us on these, this earth, we can't keep expanding our footprint uh, uh, endlessly. We have to find ways of limiting ourselves because otherwise um, we'll be the only species that really thrives and many other species will, uh, will go extinct and disappear and uh, our survival will um, uh, will be less assured than it was. That was journalist Henry Mance, a senior writer for the Financial Times. His latest book explores the many ways uh, that we can build a better future for the planet by reevaluating the way that we treat animals. It is called How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. He spoke with Culture Shift's Amanda LeClaire.